Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a terrific Tuesday on the show. Coming up this hour, Putin's praise. The Russian president just hours ago thanking security forces who he says prevented a civil war. Russia also offering mercy to the mercenaries, dropping all charges against the Wagner group after the aborted rebellion. The defense ministry says Wagner will hand over its heavy hardware. The outstanding issue remains the whereabouts of Wagner's big gun, Evgeny Prigozhin. Plus, Ukraine's gains. President Zelensky heads to the front lines, saying troops are advancing against Russia on all sides. Ukraine hoping their short-lived mutiny will weaken Russia's resolve. And Trump taped CNN obtains recordings of the former president claiming to have had in, in, in his possession a secret Pentagon document that he did not declassify. Trump has pleaded not guilty to charges of mishandling classified papers. A full report just ahead. And from taping to ticker tape, shaping off Monday's malaise, investors pushing stocks mostly higher, as you can see there, pre-market, though still a relatively cautious picture over in Europe. We also have a bevy of central bankers speaking this week as policymakers meet in Portugal. No Sintra siesta, certainly for Fed Chair Powell, who's set to speak on Wednesday and on Thursday. And in the meantime, ECB head Christine Lagarde keeping the message very clear, saying the European Central Bank is set to raise interest rates again next month. And another big confab too, sponsored by the World Economic Forum, taking place in China, where the Premier says Beijing will hit its 5% growth target despite fears of a slowdown. And I think that helped to proceed with a better tone across the Chinese markets today, with the Hang Seng rising for the first time in five sessions. News today, too, that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is planning a trip to Beijing next month, too. It's a truly global tour in store today, though we do begin in Russia, where President Putin spoke to his security forces about the Wagner revolt. Real defenders of the motherland who took part in fighting as comrades against this chaos, the result of which inevitably would have been chaos. You defended the constitution, the lives, the security and the freedom of our citizens. You saved our people, our homeland. Virtually, you stopped a civil war. In actual fact, you stopped a civil Robertson war. Robertson joins us now. Nick, you and I were saying yesterday that 
We saw President Putin in the aftermath of this, but it was a recorded message and a little bit confusing in light of what had taken place. Fast forward today, and he seems to be all over the media, not shying away from what could have been the scale of this, calling it a potential civil war, but at the same time laying out that what was funding the Wagner Group was the state and that money's now turned off. Yeah, there's a couple of things we've seen today. We've seen Putin at this sort of big formal military ceremony praising the unity of, of the security forces and, and praising the fact that they came out and stopped this uh, rebellion that could have become a civil war, he said. OK, so there are kind of, there's one lie in there that we know because the security services didn't come out and stop the Prigozhin's forces because they got very close to Moscow. They turned around of their own accord. So that doesn't uh, seem to hold truth. Then he says that the security services were very united. Well, I think, you know, in the analysis that when Putin says something, you have to examine not, or whether or not it was true. Um, perhaps that wasn't so true. There's a history of the security services not being so united in Russia. And perhaps that's why Prigozhin's forces were actually able to get as close to Moscow and as quickly as, quickly as they did. And interesting, interesting, late last night that Putin had a meeting with the heads of all his security forces. And one of those, the National Guard chief has said this morning, his forces are now going to be issued with tanks and heavy military hardware. What do we read into that? Do we read into that that he said around the table to Putin last night? How could I have stopped Prigozhin's forces? They had tanks and I had machine guns. So you do get a sense that perhaps there is a bit of disunity in the ranks because when Putin speaks, it isn't always quite as straightforward as he lays it out, which is his propaganda to the Russian people. And then the meeting this later on today where he met with the lower ranks of the Russia's military. And I think there was kind of one very simple takeaway from that. And that was uh, Putin's government equals good. They actually financed the tune of close to a billion dollars. Uh, the Wagner Group fighting on the front lines heroically for Russia. Yevgeny Prigozhin equals greedy, equals bad because he was a separate organization, Concord which got about a billion worth of dollars worth of uh, contracts from the Russian government. And now there is a question, surprise, surprise, about was there some financial irregularities in Wagner? Essentially, I think what is laying the groundwork for here is some kind of financial charges uh, of some description against Prigozhin, having had the FSB this morning drop the charges relating to this rebellion. Uh, it's very much Kremlin. It's very much how Russia and Putin specifically takes down uh, his opponents for uh, financial charges, which are very hard to refute because it's such a gray zone. Uh, so this, this is Putin trying to put a big positive spin on the disaster over the weekend. Yeah. And a projection of power to your point about the praise for the security forces that, um, at least on the surface, were, were nowhere to be seen on Saturday. Is President um, Lukashenko of Belarus actually the real winner here? He was given credit for brokering a deal and there was some scepticism around how uh, intricately involved he was in, in all of the uh, negotiation that took place when they decided to turn around. But in his own country, he's been touted as a, as a saviour of Russia. Uh, yeah, and he says, don't call me a hero. I'm not a hero. Prigozhin's not a hero. Putin's not a hero. This was just about the clash of two people. Does he mean a clash between uh, Prigozhin and uh, Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defense minister? Because that's what it looked like from the outside. Uh, perhaps is giving us uh, an insight that we're not getting from the Kremlin, that that's what it came down to. Uh, you know, I think what we hear, we, we hear from Lukashenko are a couple of things. Um, you know, I think he's afraid that the contagion can spread. Uh, he said that one of the first things he'd done was put his own 
military on a full state of military readiness. Um, he's told his people not to worry about the Wagner elements coming into, into Belarus because they have military experience and they could be useful and helpful uh, for, you know, for the defense of Belarus. So I, I think there's a sense here from Lukashenko that he played a role, but he played it potentially because he was told to. He doesn't want the contagion of revolt to spread to his country. Um, and he, he's trying to sort of set a narrative here that he's done this for the right reasons because Russia was suffering. It's the fatherland. If, the, if Russia collapses, we'll be under the rubble dead as well. Meaning if there was a revolt in Russia, there'd be a revolt in, um, in, in Belarus as well, which would bring him down. I think this all comes down to Lukashenko's ability to continue to hold on to power and protect it. A calamity for Putin is a calamity for Lukashenko. I think that's a simple subscript here. Mm, a desperate desire on both sides to, to move on from this. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. And in Ukraine, not a moment to lose. President Zelensky saying his forces are advancing in all directions on the front line. Donetsk region, Zaporizhia region. Our soldiers, our forefront positions, directions of the active actions at the front. Today, in all directions, our soldiers had an advance forward, and it is a happy day. And Nick Peyton Walsh has more of the details. Unprecedented chaos in Moscow has yet to ease Ukraine's bitter fight in the trenches. Close combat around Bakhmut, two weeks into the continued grind of the counter-offensive open operations, filmed over the weekend, just as Wagner troops roll towards Moscow. Here, the red, white and blue are Russians in disarray and surrendering. The hope is more will follow as word spreads of the failed rebellion and morale and discipline falter. It was near here Ukraine proclaimed Monday progress on the front lines, with room for hope elsewhere. To the south, on another Donetsk front near the heavily contested Marinka, it appears some Kremlin-loyal Chechen fighters were pulled to Moscow for its defence at the weekend. Here, they are strutting along an apparent highway near the capital. Bakhmut and Marinka, opportunities for Ukraine in the east, but also further west, near Kherson, the Antonivsky Bridge, the scene of intense clashes. Captured by this Russian drone, as Ukrainian forces claimed to cross over to the Russian-controlled Eastern Bank, opening another front, perhaps. It is too early to tell whether or if Russia is crumbling, and Ukraine's progress has been incremental still. This, the familiar scene when their fighters declared they'd captured another small village in the south, Rivnopil, on Monday. None of this yet, the strategic sea change and Russian collapse, the weekend's madness that Zelensky, visiting troops in the east Monday as well, will hope follows. He faces anxious choices, even with all the Kremlin's intimate ugliness so exposed. Move now or wait for more in Moscow to unravel. He must be sure to make no mistakes of his own or interrupt the torrent of them in Moscow. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Kiev, Ukraine. 
And at the so-called Summer Davos in Tianjin, China's premier gave a bullish forecast on economic growth. Despite widespread concerns, Li Chang says second quarter data will show the recovery picking up speed compared to the first three months of the year. Anna Corrin has all the details. The Chinese premier was sounding optimistic about his country's economy while addressing the World Economic Forum Summit in Tianjin today, announcing that China's economic growth was projected to reach an annual target of around 5%. It comes as the world's second largest economy is struggling to make the post-COVID recovery that markets were anticipating after it reopened at the end of last year. As you remember, China virtually cut itself off from the world for almost three years with its harsh zero-COVID policies. Li Qiang said growth in the second quarter of the year will be higher than the first and that China will roll out more effective policies to expand domestic demand and open markets. Let's take a listen. For the whole year, we are expected to achieve the target of about 5% economic growth set at the beginning of this year. Recently, some international organizations and institutions have also raised their forecast for China's economic growth this year, showing their confidence in China's development prospects. But not everyone is showing confidence. A long list of major banks and credit rating agencies have cut forecasts for economic growth in China this year. Just yesterday, S&P Global reduced growth forecasts from 55 to 5.2%, joining Goldman Sachs, UBS and JP Morgan, among others, in reducing estimates. The property sector remains a drag on the economy as developers struggle to complete pre-sold projects and the local government debt burden comes into focus. Industrial output and retail sales remain sluggish and youth unemployment is at a record 20.8%. Many young people disillusioned and anxious about China's economic uncertainty have resorted to prayer, flooding Buddhist and Taoist temples to pray for divine intervention in securing jobs. It's feared the youth unemployment rate could further rise as a record 11.6 million college students graduate this summer. Analysts believe China will need to roll out more stimulus this year to achieve growth targets, but it's unknown what form that stimulus will take. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. And caught on tape, Donald Trump admitted he had highly classified documents that he knew did not, that he did not declassify. CNN has exclusively obtained an audio recording of a 2021 meeting at the former president's golf club in New Jersey. Just take a listen to this. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. It could be crucial evidence in the federal case against the former president over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. Federal prosecutors have charged him with putting national security secrets at risk. Sarah Murray joins us now with more of the details. Sarah, just explain to our audience why this is so important to the indictment against the former president. 
Well, this is a hugely important moment for prosecutors and damning evidence against Donald Trump because he is in this meeting. He's with uh, people who are writing a biography of Mark Meadows as former White House chief of staff, as well as a couple Trump staffers, none of who have security clearance. And he's talking very cavalierly about this document that is clearly very sensitive information about a potential plan against Iran. And he even notes in part of the tape that the document is not classified and he has no ability at this point to declassify it. Take a listen to that portion. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. It's incredible. Right. No. Hey, bring some uh, bring some cokes in, please. And you can hear in that tape how carelessly they're talking about these documents. You know, he's talking about how he can't declassify them, and a staffer is saying, "Oh, now we have a problem," and then everyone starts laughing. You know, Donald Trump said in a recent interview with Fox News that there was no actual document he was referring to; these were all newspaper, magazine clippings. But he says in other parts of the tape, "I'll show you an example," and these are the papers. And you can bet that prosecutors are looking for some kind of corroborating evidence. You know, we know that they've talked to at least one of the people who was in that meeting. They talked to Mark Milley, who was someone Donald Trump was sort of railing against in the run-up to talking about uh, this document. And so they are trying to sort of work to build a case around what else other people in the meeting may have saw, whether he may have shown other people the document. And in that Mark Meadows autobiography, it refers to this document as in more detail, just describing it as a four-page document about this potential attack on Iran. Sarah Murray, thank you so much for that report there. Okay, straight ahead, former Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozirev weighs, joins me to discuss the short-lived Wagner revolt and what it means for President Putin. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Tuesday that they don't agree with some analysts who say that the short-lived rebellion compromised President Vladimir Putin's position of authority. Peskov added, these events only showcase the strength of the level of unity within society around the president. 
Meanwhile, the whereabouts of Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin is still unknown. In an audio tape released Monday, Prigozhin said the armed march to Moscow was a protest, not a move to oust President Putin. Earlier Tuesday, Russia's Federal Security Service said it's dropping the case against the Wagner Group rebels and Prigozhin for the weekend revolt. And joining us now is former Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozarev. Sir, great to have you on the show. I know it's been quite a while since you were in politics um, in Russia, but I think some things don't change. Can we say at this moment that President Putin is firmly back in charge? Well, nothing uh, ever changes in, se- in the sense that bulldogs are fighting under the carpet uh, in uh, authoritarian regimes. That's not only in Russia, but elsewhere, but it's particularly Russian tradition. And that's what we are witnessing. Uh, I would not uh, kind of uh, take it too seriously because it's just two gangsters. Uh, or more even gangsters, uh, are fighting each other. And uh, the problem is that, of course, it destabilizes. It's a a signal of the rotting of the regime, and uh, it's going on already for for 20 uh, or more years as Putin is in power, and his economic uh, record is also very bad. Uh, That is one of the reasons also. But uh, the Russian people uh, probably sees it as it is, that it's just a fight of the oligarchs. And uh, that's why they probably are neutral to that. And uh, they also believe um, part of uh, propaganda, and propaganda is overwhelming there. So it's well possible that uh, temporarily, at least, Putin could be successful in turning it internally in Russia, not for outside observers, but in Russia as a uh, gain in popularity. And he is smartly, he has very good advisors there, uh, technocrats, so to say, political kind of technocrats. And uh, he pedals um, right, <clears throat> I guess, uh, you know, uh, that is unity, patriotism, uh, thank you, people. Thank you, mm. uh, militia. Thank you, police, and all that. So um, he might come out as strong as he was uh, inside, but outside, people who are not probably that admired by the propaganda, um, though there are some useful idiots also outside, but. Uh, <laughs> Most people will probably realize, and I hope that business people especially uh, would uh, be sober enough to realize that it's just another episode in uh, in degradation of Russian regime and uh, Russia itself, unfortunately. Unfortunately, to your point, as you said, um, don't underestimate President Putin's ability to turn this to his advantage and actually to gain popularity. Who is he under greatest threat from? You're saying the the Russian people, they see a lot of propaganda. So in many ways, they believe only what they see. You've talked about the business people, perhaps, and some of the oligarchs. And then you have the security forces. And in this case, the Wagner Group. 
who's he most at risk from? Could we see another kind of uprising like this from a Wagner group or from some other military force within the country? Or is, is Wagner group now done and no longer a threat? Well, uh, if I knew uh, answers to all of that, I would be probably consulting CIA or something, but I am not. So, <laughs> Just thank you for uh, confirming uh, that. <laughs> yes, that's, that's anybody's guess. But in a system like that, uh, the system with, uh, as I said, the bulldogs or um, gangsters actually fighting inside the gang, uh, you never know. But of course, it is not the last one. It, this one probably went to the open. That's unusual. Mm. And probably took uh, actually uh, the, the form of military, uh, almost military direct confrontation. Uh, that's unusual, but that might be only uh, first of many to come. And that's the danger, the danger of the long war in Ukraine. And that's why I'm so critical of the Western uh, stance of standing with Ukraine as long as it takes. As it takes what? If it, as long as it takes Putin, uh, to fail or something, uh, that might be very long, as I said, because inside he has police state and propaganda state. Uh, so, um, but the long war creates a, a conditions very good for warlords and for generals and for security forces to claim their piece of uh, pie, which is getting thinner, of course. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the fight becomes more uh, aggressive and weaponized in real terms, you know, like using real weapons because the war provides weapons, provides experience in, in the war and, and the militaristic uh, kind of environment where everything is possible. So that's very dangerous because Russia is nuclear power, of course, and uh, some of those warlords sooner or later might start fighting for control of the ultimate weapon, so to say. So uh, in, if I were consulting the West, I would say give Ukraine the most powerful or long-range uh, weapons, whatever, to win as soon as possible. Not as long as it takes, but as soon as possible. It does not mean that the Russian regime would be better after defeat in Ukraine, but uh, they wouldn't have this drive for a use of military force. Mm -hmm. If he wins in Ukraine, uh, they will be all uh, up in the arms. Uh, I mean, literally in the arms. So that is very dangerous game. A long game is wrong. Yeah, as one analyst said to me recently, perhaps better the devil you know, but at least they're contained in their own country versus attacking another. Um, sir, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your insights. Andrei Kozarev there, the former Russian foreign minister. Sir, we'll speak again soon. Thank you and stay well. Yeah. 
Welcome back to First Move. After decades of booming growth, the commercial real estate industry has hit a wall. Property values are plummeting, offices in many cases stand empty, and rising interest rates could pressure the industry even further. CNN's Vanessa Yakevich joins us now. Vanessa, great to have you on the show with us. It's sort of the perfect storm, sharply rising interest rates in the United States, a, a, a sort of local banking credit crunch that so they've tightened up restrictions and not to mention people not going to work so much in cities. How big is this problem and could it get worse? Yeah, Julia, the commercial real estate industry is a $20 trillion market. As you mentioned, several factors playing in here. One of the big ones is that Americans changed the way we wanted to work and businesses responded. So you have high vacancy rates in the country right now, about 19 percent, and that is leaving landlords in a bind. Without tenants, they have to come up with creative ways in order to make money. They're statuesque, vast and staggering, and they're empty. Skyscrapers and office buildings once stacked high with businesses are experiencing high vacancy rates in the U.S., nearly 19 percent, five and a half percent higher than before the pandemic. I think it's a very unique uh, moment, nothing like any disruptive marketplace that I've experienced over the past 40 years. The pandemic emptied offices around the country. Today, the number of people returning to in-person work is less than 50 percent in 10 major metro areas, forcing companies to rethink physical office space. Half of the biggest global companies say they'll need less real estate in the next three years, leaving landlords with loans to pay in a bind. If there's no tenant, you're not making money. What do you do? There's no recouping, you know, lost income for downtime. Stephen Durrells runs the leasing at SL Green, New York City's largest commercial landlord. With more than 30 million square feet of space to rent, the collapsing demand for office space means their tenant vacancy rate shot up from 3% pre-pandemic to 10% today. That calls for some creativity. You can build the set in here, you can have a fight scene in here. SL Green is now working with Backlot, a company that connects landlords at 332 buildings across New York and New Jersey with film and TV companies. This episode of Law & Order was filmed in this vacant office in Midtown Manhattan. The Watcher on Netflix and these East Side offices. I think people are starting to look holistically at how they can support a revenue stream. This year, SL Green says it will earn $3 million from film and TV shoots. It's really helped mitigate the loss of income during the downtime periods. Empty office buildings could be turned into residential, a big need. This project in Washington, D.C., once an office building, is being turned into apartments. But that's not an easy, quick-fix process. Less than 1% of apartments nationwide are converted from commercial properties. And across the river in Arlington, Virginia, the city is trying to get ahead of its empty office space problem at 22%. I'm sitting right today in Northeastern's uh, D.C. campus. Last year, a university was not allowed to take up space in in an office building. Thanks to new city zoning laws, that's now possible, along with seven new types of commercial businesses like animal boarding, hydroponic farms, and pickleball. It's already happening in South Jersey. This 22,000-square-foot pickleball facility was a vacant Burlington coat factory in a strip mall. 
Regional mall vacancy is at a record high. Were there a lot of options like this on the market? Yeah, I think we had more opportunity than we thought there would be in the market. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America. So does that mean that the sport needs to find places to play quickly? The greatest threat to the growth of pickleball is the lack of facility. Now, pickleball is obviously a great way to attract people into a building, but you can't throw up pickleball courts in every single skyscraper in major cities that have vacant office space. But landlords we spoke to say that businesses need to reimagine the space in which workers want to work in order to attract them back. So we're hearing from landlords that many companies are redoing their office spaces, creating higher ceilings, natural light, uh, perks in the office like better cafeterias and food options, Julia. But, you know, the big banks are the ones that really provide the lending, the financing for these uh, landlords. They're not on the same page right now. I just want to take you through a few of them. Bank of America is saying that this commercial real estate concern is manageable. Morgan Stanley says, on the other hand, it's going to be worse than the financial crisis. And then UBS, uh, somewhere in the middle, saying that the headlines are worse than reality. So even the banks not really on the same page with this and the outlook. But we are seeing creativity in the way that landlords are repurposing commercial space. The problem is that there's still too much of it, especially uh, in major cities right now, Julia. Yeah, perhaps one way to uh, analyze the viewpoints from those uh, banks on this is to look at their loan books and understand uh, how much exposure they all have to uh, commercial real estate. Just suggesting. Vanessa, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, bringing some hope for intelligence, perhaps, to the debate around artificial intelligence. Are we needlessly worrying about Terminators taking over and perhaps missing more obvious dangers at play? That conversation at next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Every day we hear more about the potential good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to the development and use of generative artificial intelligence. Well, my next guest, Aidan Gomez, is a former Google researcher and is now looking to harness the power of this technology on his own. He believes AI will one day be our interface to the online world when it comes to asking for something in plain English like this, rather than clicking through 30 links on Google search like this. He also believes recent warnings that AI could lead to human extinction are a dangerous narrative and also irresponsible because they prey on our fears of Terminator-style killer bots. And what about a six-month pause in AI development? He says that's absurd and a distraction from the real risks, as he'll explain. Gomez is co-founder at Cohere, an AI platform for enterprise. It just raised $270 million worth of funding and signed a major partnership with Oracle. And Aidan Gomez joins us now. Aidan, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start by explaining what you do at Cohere. What are you offering enterprise or business customers? 
So we build a platform which lets enterprises use large language models, which are these latest generation of AI models. Uh, they power ChatGPT, and we do it in a way that's completely cloud agnostic. So on Oracle, on AWS, Azure, Google, wherever you are, we can bring our models to, to your data privately and secure, securely. So you're actually developing and building providing the data that trains these models for all these customers, then as you say, anybody can use it no matter what platform you're using. How expensive is that to create, to train these models, these large language models? And how many people are involved in doing so? Yeah, so to clarify, we build, we collect both the data and we also build the models. So we scrape a lot of data from the web. We also generate our own data in-house. And then we train that on a massive supercomputer. Um, and so it is very expensive. It's very capital intensive. These supercomputers are some of the largest, most complex machines humans have built. Um, and so it does take a great deal of, of capital. So you don't have people actually cleaning up, filtering, individuals looking at this data in order to ensure um, or to reduce the amount of kind of hallucinations. We talk a lot about this on the show and the, the quality of the data that trains these models, vital. Extremely vital. It's like extraordinarily sensitive to the point Mm. where in a data set of millions and millions of examples, if you have 10 examples which are incorrect or demonstrate the wrong behavior, you can mess up the whole model. So increasingly, I feel like these companies like Cohere that are building massive language models, it's kind of like rocket engineering where you have this big team, uh, a bunch of different teams focusing on different components. And if anyone messes up, the rocket blows up. And so it's extremely, extremely sensitive, very, very precise. So how many people have you got doing that? Because I think you've you sort of made my point for me in terms of um, the dangers. And we've seen it, you know, we've, we've watched in the past with journalists interviewing chat GPT star models, and they start talking to them about leaving their wives and marrying them because they were trained on romance novels. Like we all know how um, dodgy this can be if you if you get the data set wrong that's training them. How many people do you outsource this? I mean, as you said, you scrape the internet, but that's not cleaning it up and ensuring that the clients that you provide this to are getting the right kind of training model that's accurate for their business or, or their requirements. Yeah, so we use, we use two different strategies. The yeah. first is we use scalable computational strategies. So we use the models themselves to filter the data. And so there's like a positive feedback loop where as your model gets better, it gets better at cleaning the data to train the next the next model. The second strategy is, yeah, we put this data in front of humans and we ask humans to generate it. And so we're getting human eyes on each data point, checking whether it's of the sort that we want our models to, to observe. Okay, so that gives me some degree of comfort that there is human overlay involved in, um, in this process. Um, why would Oracle um, sign a partnership with you or AWS? Why not do it in-house for them? I mean, I appreciate it's capital intensive, but why outsource this to you or, or bring you in with your expertise? And, and you, I guess, understand the question better than most because you're a researcher at Google. So you understand sort of the process they go through. Yeah, so I, I think um, this project, the creation of these models, this category of generative AI, it's one of the most complex projects that we've undertaken in computer science as a field. Um, there's very few people on Earth who know how to do this. Some estimates put it at around 300 to 400 people. And so, frankly, there's just not enough of us on the planet for everyone to be doing this in-house themselves. Mm. 
there need to be independent players like Cohere who can serve on all different cloud platforms and who aren't bound to anyone. So I think I'm super excited about the partnership with Oracle because we're going to be training and deploying for all of Oracle's customers. Um, and so there's a lot to be done, um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be done in-house. Cohere has put together uh, an extraordinary team uh, with extremely rare knowledge and expertise, and it's exciting to be able to partner with someone as fantastic uh, and with so much breadth as Oracle. I, I appreciate your point, though, about efficiency as well and, and sharing resources. OK, talk to me about your punchy comments, because we've gone through a period of a few months where we've gone from, look, we need a six-month pause in development to being AI Armageddon and, and this sort of technology in the wrong hands is going to um, make humans extinct. Aidan, you say it's ridiculous. Explain why and what we're missing as a result of the drama and, and why the drama, actually, from the industry too. Yes, yeah, so I think it's a super salient compelling narrative, right? Like even before we had computers, humans have been telling stories about, um, you know, our machines becoming intelligent, automatons, and then taking over the world. And so that is embedded into the public's consciousness in such a deep way that spans literally a century. Um, and so when people look at this technology, they see how smart it is, they interact with it. it, it it's so shocking. It's so surprising that we've been able to develop something this intelligent, they immediately look back to what they've, what they've heard in the past, which are these stories of, of doom and gloom. And so I think that it's, it's misleading um, and it maybe even distracts from the real problems that we're going to be facing. Um, you mentioned some of those in the, in the preamble. I think social media, for instance, the ability for us to spin up a million bots, which are indistinguishable from humans because they're so fluent, becomes way, way easier, way more plausible. Um, and there are other risks, like this technology is still early. We have to remember that we're in the first year of its deployment. It's, it's a baby as a technology. Um, and so there are places where it's not yet appropriate to deploy. We can't just replace you know, doctors and judges and stick in AI. That's completely that's a terrible idea. And so there are real threats, uh, but they're not extinction. They're, they're not the annihilation of our species. Um, they're much less, you know, gripping narratives, but they're much more realistic and much more plausibly implementable today. Do you think it's a ploy by the industry to drum up investment, get people excited, you know, whether we're going extinct or otherwise, everybody's talking about AI and that's the way perhaps to generate immediate sources of funding because you're in the hottest, sexiest area. And if it's a way to grab headlines, so be it. Do you think that's what's going on? I think if I were a cynic, I would say yes. I, I think that people are genuinely concerned. I know that a lot of people in the field, especially like who are very close to the research, myself included, we did not expect the technology to be where it is today. Mm. Today. We expect, like, I expected it maybe in a quarter century. Like, by the end of my wow. career, if we had models that could do what they're doing today, I would have thought, we'd made incredible progress. And so the whole field is reckoning with shock. Our timelines have been compressed in a way that really, I think, took everyone by surprise. And one reaction to that shock, one, one reaction to grappling with that uh, poor estimate that we all made is to say, okay, now anything is possible. Mm. Who knows? Maybe in five years, these models will be so capable that they'll you know, take over the world. I, I think our 
imagination has just blown open because we were so surprised by where the technology got to in such a short time. So the deep cynic in me is now sort of shrinking somewhat in the face of your shock because I think you raise a great point about not really knowing what's possible, but um, sort of raising the alarm bells in the interim. Um, I'm just getting warmed up and I'm out of time. Aidan, you're going to have to come back. We've got much more to discuss and I'm sure you're going to be doing more and quickly as well um, as the company grows. Great to have you on and get your thoughts. Thank you. Aidan Gomez, co-founder and CEO of Cohere AI. All right, coming up after the break, some serious cruise controlling. Stand by for our Becky Anderson, some breathtaking stunts. Oh, and there you go. Look, the odd Mission Impossible star like Tom Cruise. That's it. Welcome back to First Move, where it's time to raise our glass to one of Scotland's best known exports, single malt whiskey. Many bottles of the region's most treasured tipple come from a place known as the Whiskey Isle, and we transport you there in today's Global Connections. Crashing waves, roaring winds, and snow-capped mountains. This is the Scottish island of Isla. Its wild weather can make it a marathon to get to. But a glass of the island's single malt whiskey will transport you there in a second. You have a briny character which takes you to the end of the pier. I can smell the peat, I can smell the land, I can smell the botanicals. In fact, I can almost hear the birds. Scotland has long been synonymous with whiskey, but this tiny island off the west coast could be considered the crown jewel. Known as the Whiskey Isle, the spirit is one of the island's largest employers, and it's home to nine, soon to be eleven, distilleries. One of which, Ardbeg, broke records last year for selling a single cask of 1975 whiskey for a staggering $19 million. On Isla, news travels very fast, so it was talked about in the local supermarket, and there was a feeling of real pride and honesty about it that somebody wanted to pay that much for a beautiful lot of liquid from 1975. Today, whisky makes up over three quarters of Scotland's food and drink exports. More than $7 billion worth of whisky was sold across 174 markets last year, with an average of 53 bottles being exported every second. Its popularity prompted a flurry of new distilleries like Kilcoman, the first to be built here in 124 years. But despite its youth, it's taking whiskey distilling back to its roots. Making whiskey was traditionally done at farms. That's what that's what it started. So the guys would have a bit of barley left over, they'd grow a bit of barley, make whiskey to see them through the winter. So we'd grow in the barley, then malt the barley on site, runs through the distillation process and then it's matured on site in Isla as well. And for us, that's very important because the whole product comes from Isla. Born and raised on the island, Isla believes these traditions give Isla Scotch a distinct taste that sets it apart from mainland whisky. Whisky runs in Islanders' veins. Whisky's always been produced in Isla. My dad worked at Lagavulin Distillery for 35 plus years. My brother works uh, in one of the other distilleries locally uh, and my son works in the stillhouse at Kilhoman, so we're all connected. The liquid spirit carries the island's identity, its history and its people 
to every corner of the planet. I'm very proud to be an Eloch, somebody from an Isla. I'm very proud of what Isla brings to the world through its whiskies. Okay, and one of the big questions since that aborted mutiny in Russia on Saturday is the whereabouts of the Wagner leader. Well, we have now confirmed, according to the Belarus president, Lukashenko, that Yevgeny Prigozhin has arrived in Belarus. He was quoted on Belarusian state TV as saying, I see that Prigozhin is already flying on this plane. Yes, indeed, he is in Belarus today. According to a senior European intelligence official speaking to CNN earlier, two private planes that had been linked to Prigozhin landed in Minsk, the capital, earlier on Tuesday morning. They did not know, the official, whether Prigozhin was actually on board either of those planes, but it does seem, according to the Belarus president, he has now arrived in Belarus. If we see and get any further details on that, or if indeed we see if Jenny Prigozhin, we will bring it straight to you. But for now, the breaking news just into CNN. It does appear that the Wagner leader, as you see on your screen, is now in the capital of Belarus, Minsk. And that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. And Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 